The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Tonight, the meal is going to be a, uh, what is this, this is, um, pulled pork. Once again, I'm not very kosher tonight. And some um, cryptic red wine. I'm not quite sure. Just it caught me. I was going to get Joel Gott, but cryptic caught my eye. Just sounds cryptic. So, it just sounded cool, actually. <clears throat> the um, Tonight is really from Michelle Washburn about year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, when I first got on Facebook uh, and was trying to post stuff and didn't like it, so I just stopped uh, stopped doing live videos. And she said, please, do something on raising children. Well, I've been thinking about you, Michelle, for a long time um, and thinking what I had to say on that topic. And finally, it came through backwards with this book that my son read in his dreams which I hadn't written yet, but as soon as he told me the title, When Children Walk the Earth, I realized, that's my book, gotta be written. So I've been working on it ever since. We're on chapter four now, and, and this is where it gets to actually um, what the fundamental theology of Christianity and the fundamental world change that's taken place in Christ says about raising children. And so I'll be sharing that with you. It's okay, it's a little bit sharp. And let me see, we'll try this. This, by the way, the process of making this pork, pulled pork, is we smoke it for about three or four hours, and then we put it in the oven overnight at about 200 degrees. And uh, the key thing though, is it has Anne's rub on it, and it just, it's like to die for. This, by the way, gives me a whole different perspective on when um, Jesus said, I have longed to eat this meal with you, you know, in, at the um, at the Last Supper. We always pictured, you know, from the foundation of the world, he finally has disciples, this is the moment. And by the way, theologically, I think that's probably true. But also, I have longed to eat this meal with you because I haven't eaten since I got up this morning at about five o'clock to prepare a feast for a wedding that's taking place today. And um, the longer the day went, the hungrier I got, and the more I was thinking, man, I am longing to eat this meal with them. Well, not quite with them, but if you come visit, it can be for you. And they're genuinely amazing. Okay. Let's clear the deck here. 
Final gesture and knock it down. Let's look at this. Michelle, for you, here goes. The name of the book is When Children Walk the Earth. This is chapter four, The Power of Ethical Service. Love your children. Now, because the leaders of every government in history use the father-child analogy to explain their power over you, that's got the AC off, over you who are the mere people, and the power of the father-child analogy gives the power to them to control your life and the, gives you, the child, the obligation to submit, they admit that the story of humanity up until now has been the story of children walking the earth, guided by a few father figures. After all, they're the ones who said, that's what government is. So, is children walking the earth? I don't think that's what God intended from the beginning. In fact, from the beginning, it was not so. Authoritarian government was and is God's provision to a hard-hearted world bent on rebellion. And the, that world and the root of its rebellion has been forever transformed in the work of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, Christians, particularly in this day and age, tend to view this as a, as, as a theological point instead of something that has transacted on the cross. Now, the world has changed because God's law is its inescapable design in all creation, and, and mankind in particular no longer needs governments of men to enforce it externally on people hopelessly incapable of obedience from the heart. Because God came in human form, and because he paid the price of our hard hearts and paid the price of all our sins, gave us living and new hearts, and you can have that too. In fact, if you call upon the name of Jesus Christ, you do have that whether you ever knew that or not. And because he lives in us by the Holy Spirit, it is now possible to think of self-government by that law written on our hearts. This isn't anarchy. Anarchy is people ruling themselves apart from God's law. This is God's law written on your heart, prophesied in the Old Covenant and fulfilled in the New, self-consciously. Not, we're not sinless, but finally from the center of our being, our direction in life is shaped by God's Holy Spirit and the way it hasn't been since the original fall into sin. This is not a technical theological change. It's the reality of the new creation. Do you believe Paul meant what he said when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Does, does that sound like world change to you? Does that sound like he's saying, now, now when Jesus comes back, that's when it'll be? Or does it sound like he's describing you? Now all things are of God, he goes on to say, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not holding their trespasses against them, because he took it on the cross, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Try and get that out of your theological consistency place. Try and get that out of your evangelical, oh, this means I'm saved, as small as you can make it place. Oh, well, this is for me. I don't know what is true for you. Try, that's, that's the modern evangelical. Try instead to see that Paul is saying the world has changed. Specifically, the world has changed for all the governments of the earth, including the family. 
So let's review the first two family issues briefly that I looked at in chapters three and four in the uh, videos prior to this. Look at how the good news of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his cross, and Pentecost had made it possible to really love our children. In chapter 3, we saw that the aspect of the family that rulers focus on is the incompetence of the child to get along without a firm hand. That's why they like this analogy, and they, of course, are the father. The child cannot feed himself, clothe himself, relieve himself, clean himself, heal himself without a father there to instruct the child's mother in how to do it for him. Voila! You have the leader, the father, his bureaucrats, the mother, and there for you, the incompetent child. Now in that chapter, chapter 3, I didn't dispute the legitimacy of the analogy for two reasons. Even though it's offensive, the fact of the matter is, it is an accurate depiction of the rebellion of humanity which had reduced their heart to a childish incapacity to care for themselves without the destructive rape and riot of anarchy. God provided authoritarian governance in society and in the home until what he had planned from the garden could be restored in Jesus Christ. The second reason I don't object to the analogy is it is legitimate even after Christ. And I'll tell you how. The external force can be necessary to care for and protect the incompetent, such as children. And so when you look at civil government, when you look at church government, their goal is to keep you incompetent, and therefore you need them. That's one of the reasons they want to make victims out of you. But God's purpose for fatherhood, which is why I like the analogy, is not to be the external force for feeding, cleaning, doctoring, and giving purpose to the children. The main purpose of fatherhood is to produce in 12 to 15 years adults capable of morally directing their lives in all these rudimentary areas, and more, to take dominion of the earth as God designed them to. When Christ restored God's original purpose in the family, fatherhood isn't even the full picture of what he had planned, but only the shadow of family authority as he designed it in the garden and plans to restore it in his people. You see, when kings and priests do not faithfully structure their power and authority to rule over ethically and spiritually mature men and women of sound judgment, these kings and priests have not only failed, they have shown themselves to be miserable impostors and usurpers of God's charge to them because they make permanent the state of childish helplessness in order to preserve their own power. The children, the congregation, the citizens learn to fear the responsibility of adulthood when they're raised that way. And they too clamor for more chains, more protection, more care. Mom, Dad, can I live at home in your basement? It's, it's a recession out there. They do this out of compassion, believing that it's Christian to keep the elite in power so that the people can have this codependent relationship with them because that is the only loving way to be sure that people are cared for. I mean, after all, the elders told Moses what today's elders in the Tay's church tell us. Slavery in Egypt really does have its advantages, you know. You get leeks and garlics with the food they give you. Hey, it's guaranteed work. And man, look at those pyramids we're building. That's meaning they're going to be here 4,000 years from now. We are part of the plan of God to build the kingdom of man. Why would you want to mess with that, Moses? Jesus, can't you be satisfied with anything? And so the elders of 
Israel and Egypt and the elders of the church encourage us to maintain our slave religion. But in Christ, the world has changed. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how they reinterpret it. We come to chapter 4, and that was when I realized that before I could turn to how to love your children, we had to listen to Paul and listen to Jesus and learn how God's pattern in the garden is restored for the parents. Genesis 3.16 implies a struggle. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And it's going to be painful because that rule over you is going to result in childbirth. It isn't just the rebellion of the woman that's the issue here. The woman rebelled, therefore the godly man has to take her in hand and show her how to be a woman and how to run the faith. No, it's not that at all. The judgment against the woman was as much a judgment against the man. The man was, the woman was no more designed by God in the garden. We're going to be looking at those verses that we looked at them actually in chapter four. The woman was no longer, no more designed by God to be ruled over by the man than the man was designed to rule over the woman. The man was as much a rebel. It was a punishment to both of them <clears throat> to be ruled in a way neither was created or designed to do. To heal this, you need to have the eyes of the garden. It's those garden eyes in Jesus Christ I want you to put on and see how it actually was. And don't act like a child imagining what the adult world must be like. See what God says the adult world is. Like children playing grown-up, it's hard to understand what maturity means. So we try to twist everything through the lens of authoritarian government kind and compassionate authoritarian government rather than mean and harsh authoritarian government. But from the beginning, it was not so. God didn't design that at all. That was a stopgap put in there to teach us like a pedagogue until we came to maturity in Christ. This is why all ways of putting the question, who is in charge, presuppose that marriage is a struggle of a man and a woman. <clears throat> For at all times, someone must be in charge. Someone must be in charge. Which one? So we imagine ways to work out a, a co-rule. Is that God's best? Is that what was going on in the garden? Adam and Eve and a co-rule? Each of them in charge? But if we can get away from the trick question that frames the issue and look at what actually happened in the garden and, and listen to the word that Jesus spoke first in the garden to Adam and Eve, the first words he spoke to humanity. And then he repeated them to his disciples. And at the time they didn't get it, but Paul did. What Jesus said is, the two shall become one flesh. The family is not to be ruled by two rulers. There is no issue to resolve of who is in charge. We have two adults here, two mature. Are they two mature image bearers? Is that really the way it's put in the garden? It's a bit ambiguous on that point. In reality, there is only one in charge of the children. In the Christian home, in the garden home, there was no one else to be in charge of other than children. The man is not to be in charge of the woman. The woman is not to be in charge of the man. They are to be one flesh. One person is in charge. When you put Paul's follow-up to Jesus, 
together with what Jesus said, it should be clear. Jesus said, from the beginning, the two become one flesh. And then when Paul follows up on that, <clears throat> he, he rejects an authority structure between the two of them and simply says to the wife, and this is in the context of submit to each other. He says, okay, wife, you submit this way. Husband, you submit that way. There's no authority structure there between the two of them. And simply says, wife, submit to the husband. And says to the husband, die for the wife. Take off your, someone has to be in charge glasses, as a child would look at being grown up as being, I can do whatever I can do, want to do. In this case, looking at the way God intended as being, well, who did he intend to be in charge? Take those glasses off, child, and see what is in front of your face in the scriptures. There is only one parent in two persons. The incarnation, by introducing us to a being who can be 100% God and 100% man, introduced God's people to one of the most amazing realities of God, and that is he can be 100% three and 100% one at the same time without losing identity or unity or communication or purpose or direction or being confusing or anything like that. Should it surprise you that the mystery of salvation reflects the same mystery found in the divine being of God? Why should that surprise you? That as an individual, you can be fully united to Christ, yet the you is not lost in oneness as if it's some Eastern religion discovered under a baobab tree in meditation. You are not lost, yet you are united. Christ and his church are the unity of believers with God that preserves and makes meaningful their individual reality. And that's marriage. One being rules the family in two persons. The two become one flesh, and this is the mystery of Christ and his church. These are the words of Jesus Christ. The two shall become one. Let not philosophies and traditions of men tear them apart and tell you somebody has to be in charge. Somebody is in charge. The two who are one. That's who's in charge. So the incarnation is the first lesson for raising children. We're now coming into chapter 5 here. The incarnation is the first lesson for raising children. The word of God written on stone becomes the word of God revealed in flesh as God had always intended. It's the foundation of God's plan for the family. Concretely, this day began on conception day when God took his first step in his human life, in his human life walk from a single cell forward to his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven where he rules history to this day, fully God and fully man. You can be confident that the one who walked where you now stand is walking with you through the joys and sorrows of being one flesh and raising your children as two persons. After all, he was God and he was man. And he still is. He is the image of the unseen God. And so are man and his wife in the garden. And that's that ambiguity. He says, male and God made man in his own image. Male and female, he made them. Well, I don't get a God. Was somebody in charge? Was somebody supposed to do this and that? And, and you know what? The idea of somebody being in charge doesn't come until after the fall. Up until the fall, the garden perspective was they are one in God's image, both separately as image bearers and both together as image bearers. That's why God said it's not good for a man to dwell alone. It's the first not good thing that was in the garden. I know somebody's going to invoke Paul on me on this in Romans. 
and say, well, you know, man has headship because he's, he came first. And then Paul says, well, on the other hand, women gives birth to man. So maybe, well, we just won't go. Then he changed the topic and moves on. Where do you think that's going? Therefore, the most important thing is being one parent to your children in a way that doesn't compromise the individuality of what a man and his wife bring to the table as two different genders. Nor does it do damage to what the particular personality or particular character traits of the man might be in contrast with those of the woman. They are vital to your union. He wants them in one f flesh and he wants their distinctiveness. Talk about this to each other together. I, I would even say turn this off and if you're watching with your husband or wife or whatever, talk about that before you hear anything else I have to say. Think that through. Where is this going? What does it mean to be one flesh? Doesn't it mean that our warfare has ceased as was prophesied of the New Testament? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Say to Jerusalem, your warfare has ceased. And this struggle that's built into the question, who's in charge, is over. When you understand that they're one flesh. And you understand that that oneness mirrors Christ and his church. It mirrors the Trinity. It mirrors the divine and the human in one person, in Jesus Christ. So talk about this together. I don't know how you will work this mystery out. Some of you will go screaming into the den and turn this off and say, it's got to be the devil. Somebody's got to be in charge. But I'm going to suggest a few things that I see from where I sit. <clears throat> but you are the ones who are working out your salvation with each other as you apply your walk in the incarnate Christ to your walk in each other. So the first thing I want to point out to you is several slogans that you probably have never heard. I am for the Holy Spirit. He leads and guides my life. No, 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 no. I belong to Jesus because Jesus is the example for my life and he died for my sins. No, it's Father God whom I serve because the authority God has granted unto me to rule in the earth. Now, have you ever heard anybody say anything that stupid? I mean, I, I get embarrassed just having spoken the words, but I mean, it's, it's stupid. Nobody says, I am for the Holy Spirit. No, I am for Jesus. They might say, I am for Paul, I am for Apollos. But they won't split up the Godhead like that. As if there's some advantage or benefit of one over the other. There's no place for playing children against the parent, the other parent, either. And that's what we do when we uncover our, our one flesh's nakedness. We need to trust God to work through even the things you don't like about your wife or husband and their influence <clears throat> on the children. Now, I'm not discussing the fact that there's some relationships that you can't work through them with. I'm talking about the ideal here. Don't give your children room to think that you are running a guerrilla war against your spouse and recruiting them into that battle. You're not made closer to your children by being honest with them. Of course, about the weaknesses of your husband or wife. <clears throat> and sharing your frustration with the other's weakness, real or imagined. Of course, work on these issues with each other, but do it the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit might work on issues. Surely there is something they talk about as they commune in the Godhead. So commune with your husband and wife that way. Talk about it that way. 
Obviously, there is no room. Okay, and this is the second thing. The first thing is, don't, don't try and recruit your children into a battle against the other side of the marriage. Secondly, obviously there's no room for your children ever thinking that they can play one of you against the other. When this happens, remember the sorrow Jesus had when his disciples, those closest to him, just didn't get it. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? When your children play one of you against the other, if you have built your relationship with them, and we'll talk about that in a minute, you can ask them, how long have you known me, Judy? Didn't you know that when you talk to me, you're talking to dad? Or when you talk to dad, excuse me, mom, you're talking to me? Why would you treat us as if we aren't married or we weren't your parents? Now, I'm not saying you use those exact words with them. I'm saying it's that concept of who you are in Christ and the unity in that marriage. That when you talk to one, you're talking to the other. You're not talking to the second in command or the first in command. You're not pulling rank. You're saying, I am talking to those who are one flesh. They are unified. There is no rule in the family over anyone except the incompetent children. And of course, that rule is designed to end the incompetence in 12 to 15 years. Now, okay, don't get me wrong. That's so idealistic. There may be times when you take the Psalm 94 approach with them and say, Understand, you brutish among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? Dad and I are married. We are one flesh. Don't go playing us like a fool. And by the way, remember, the rod is for the back of fools. Come over here. Bend over. Now, you're going to need wisdom as to how to handle this. But if you ask, God will give the wisdom to you in that hour. And, I mean, what, did you think that was a promise for just going to trial or getting sentenced to the, being eaten by lions or something? No, it's for you on whom the ends of the ages have come when you're dealing with your children. The second lesson of raising children is the cross, the day of atonement, redemption, and transformation, the day that God paid the price of our sin and rebellion. He redeemed his people, giving them a heart of flesh just like his. Now, I would say this is the most obvious way that... that, that these doctrines affect child rearing, except once these things are kind of suggested to you, your elbows juggled, they're all obvious. Raising children is the most important thing you could ever do to be directly faithful to the creation mandate, your design and purpose statement. Think about that creation mandate statement for a second. I'm going to take a bite. Hmm. I have longed all day to eat this meal with you. It's really good. And many women have done well, but you have surpassed them all. I'm not going to wait for the kids to say that. I'm saying it right now. Raising children is the most important thing you could ever do to be directly faithful to the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That is your design and your purpose statement. That is the clearest expression of the person and redemption of Jesus Christ, restoring you, his image bearers, to someone who can effectively be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. History is the unfolding of the flesh 
and, and in history of the word of God's grace and God's redemption and God's presence. I'll say that again. History is the unfolding in the flesh of the word of God's grace and God's redemption and God's presence. Because history of this is the story of Jesus Christ affecting God's will in the earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us is, is a statement that comprehends every moment of your life as it plays its role in bringing creation to its grand conclusion. I'll say that again because you need to get a hold of this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This isn't an historical note. Oh, look at that. The Word is flesh over there. That's cool. Yeah, did you notice that? No, no. The Word becoming flesh and dwelling among you is a statement that comprehends every moment of your life as your life plays its role in bringing creation to its grand conclusion. So, of course, child-rearing is all about the atonement. It is all about the suffering service on the behalf of a child who literally has no way they can possibly appreciate all you can do for them while they were yet crying in the crib. You ministered to them. The one who could do anything you wanted came to that child. You don't think there's a picture of atonement? You just think atonement has to do with sin. No, atonement has to do with making the world right. Sin is only one of the ways the world is not quite right. A child who literally has no way they can possibly appreciate all you do for them <clears throat> is transformed through your laying down your life through the atonement to turning them into people who in the end can be self-governing expressions of God's law, God's epistle to the world. Now, the first way you do this is the cross doesn't so much address what you do. The cross is obvious to any parents who stay up all night with a newborn or all night with a sick child, not knowing what the morning is going to bring or all night finishing a child's project or presentation or all night wondering when the child will get home. That's not even the tip of the iceberg of all you do and all you lay down for your child. Your service is the foundation of your authority in your child's life. You can say all you want to. I'm the mom, that's why. I'm the dad, that's why. But you know what? If you're not somebody who's laid down your life for the child and they've known it from their earliest consciousness, <clears throat> you can say that till you're blue in the face. A child knows a hypocrite when he sees one. Because the child knows being impressed with the image of God himself what a hypocrite is, and that's somebody who thinks that authority comes from something other than laying down your life. When you lay down your life for your children, you're discipling the nations that will spring from their loins. The cross addresses your vision in the midst of what you do. This, this, this is the second thing the cross does. The cross addresses your vision in the midst of what you do fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12 too. That is the meaning of our existence. Through the difficulties we have in raising and ministering and discipling our children, we're doing what Jesus did. We're looking, we're despising the shame. You're just a housewife? You're just a house husband? Man, you guys spend all that time taking care of your kids. Don't you guys ever do anything for fun? What's wrong with you? It's a kid. Man, I'm going crazy with these kids in here. I'm just going gaga. I got to have some adult conversation. 
We have eight kids. Totally understand that. Totally been there. Who for the joy set before you, you endure the cross, despising the shame, and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is your calling in life. That's what Jesus did. It is the meaning of your existence. And nothing brings it out more totally, more thoroughly, and more plainly than when you do this for your children. The third point. The cross is the beginning of your sex education with your children. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I don't mean you teach it verbally to them as they grow up. See all I do for you? It's so you can have good sex with whoever you marry. No, that's not how the sex education works. And this is something that's been very heavy on my heart. For the last 10 years, I've been, I've been asking youth directors, pastors, people everywhere. Actually, it's going on 15 years now. Why should we abstain from sex outside of marriage? They've solved all the problems of disease and unwanted pregnancy. Why shouldn't we use it just as a pure tool of joy and pleasure and that sort of thing? And the thing that's striking to me is they don't have an answer. And the reason they don't have an answer, quite simply, is because they bought the modern church's lie, first of all, that the law doesn't, you know, law condemns, grace enables. But the other reason they, they don't have an answer is finally all they can say is, don't do it! Which, by the way, I'm not making light of the law of God. Yeah, don't do it. But is that all? Is it just the bare command of God, kind of like God saying, hey, Eve, don't eat the fruit? You know, what else is there to it? What else is going on with the don't do it that a child can grasp? What I'm talking about here is if you understand the cross, if you understand service, if you understand laying down your life, if you've taught your children, by the time they get to where it's appropriate to discuss sex, you will already have taught them everything they need to know about sex that really matters. And it won't be something you have to argue about at the time. But really, honey, there's someone out there. In our culture today, the church is facing a crisis of sexuality because with the sterilized modern world, the church has abandoned the relevance of the cross to everyday life, and they've abandoned the literal fulfillment of be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Serving those you love is what gives you the authority in their life to be heard. So if nothing else, when you get to the point that you say, don't do it, just say no. They, you built this relationship with them. We'll talk about how to, more about that in a minute. You've built that relationship that they realize you're somebody of credibility. You have that authority in their life. You're somebody worth taking seriously. Serving those you love is what gives you the authority in their life to be heard, honored, and obeyed. As you live this out with them, when you discuss the place of sex, they will understand that it is the ultimate ministry you offer to the one you join to disciple the generations who are depending on you to be faithful. Okay? Well, anyway, I'll say more about this in just a minute. When we get to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's always good to have the Holy Spirit in these times, that's for sure. Okay, the fourth thing. The cross is where you were made someone who can receive and act on the things of God. And this is what you are laboring for in your children, to be used of God to write his law on their heart, to become what Adam and Eve short-circuited in the garden. And if you think there's any greater privilege, any greater calling, than to be somebody who writes scripture, I have no idea what, what pagan planet you live on. 
But when you raise your children, God is making you the scribe for his word to be written on their hearts. And you're going to tell me there's some ministry out there that's more important than that? Please? I remember Dobson, who, by the way, fabulous ministry out there, said, you know, if we had had more than two children, we ne my, my wife and I never could have done had this ministry. Are you serious? The greatest mind of the 20th century on child raising, actually right in those words, pissed on all of his future generations, as if discipling his children meant nothing for the future thousands that could have been coming from them, now cut down to just two. The greatest privilege in the world is to write the law of God on the hearts of your children. And if you don't get that, then in many ways, turn this thing off. Yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing more to communicate. You're writing it there so that you with them can become what Adam and Eve short-circuited in the garden. You can become people who are invited by God to the tree of knowledge of good and evil to partake of it as mature adults enjoying the fruit of embracing the good and rejecting the evil because you waited for God's invitation. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, you never eat of that tree. I, I have no idea. That's, that's the theoretical. I do know this. God was not withholding communion. He was making the point, when I give something to you, it's good. It may be a good thing, but if you take it without me giving it to you, it's evil. It'll destroy you. It'll eat you alive. And if nothing else, if you can learn that difference between good and evil, you then understand what it means to receive from God his gifts that he wants for you in the time and the season and with the person with whom he wants you to share those gifts. And if you and your children understand that, if they see it in how you raise them, if they understand setting aside present pleasure for future gain, and if you're tied up in debt, it's very difficult to teach that lesson. If you can understand how God acted out his story there in the garden, what all of us must be to grow up, we must have the law of God at our heart, and that means obeying him, even though it may not make sense at the moment, and having the good judgment to apply it. The fast word for that is ethical judicial judgment, but that's what it means. This is the goal of parenting. It is the fruit of the cross, which combines the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil into one tree. A new heart ruled by God's law is the purpose of redemption. It is the purpose of the parents. When you come to the Lord for your agape feast and to commune with him and to remember what he did for you, you're, you're partaking of the fruit of that tree of good and evil, of life, and the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Man and wife, as sexual beings, can truly be what we were made to be, one parent, and with that parenting, disciple the earth. Finally, the third lesson of raising children is Pentecost, the day of inspiration, of infilling, when God personally came to dwell in the human sanctuaries that he had created, redeemed, transformed, and now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he indwells them. So it shouldn't be any surprise that when he says, I want you to run your government of the church dependent on me, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, not on an organization that says, well, we think Fred ought to be ordained, so we'll convey the Holy Spirit to him the way Simon the Magus said to do it. No, 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 no. You wait for the Holy Spirit. You tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost comes upon you. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is God assuring us, though, that history belongs to him. And with that general truth, the Holy Spirit assures in your heart the particular truth for you that your personal history belongs to him. He is going somewhere with you. He formed you in the garden, and he brought you forth at just the right time to redeem you and fill you with his presence and finish writing God's word on your heart. Okay, so the first application of Pentecost to the raising of children is sex. <laughs> I know everything goes back to sex. <clears throat> Let's go back to sex ed a second. Explaining sex is, is simple. That's, that's very difficult. But as a child of the modern church, you believe we are under grace, not law. So is there a reason not to enjoy sex recreationally? The average modern Christian has a very hard time with that question. I know a lot of you get it. But, but the average modern Christian in the church has a hard time. Because if we're not under law, we're under grace, then why not enjoy the grace of sex recreationally? As a child of the church, your traditional reasons for abstaining, disease, pregnancy, intimacy, have been resolved by the world. God's law thunders impotently. No to the modern Christian, because God's grace says, why not just chill and enjoy what gifts God has given you, the gifts of sex, as he grants you the opportunity. The modern Christian, honestly, really doesn't have a good answer to that, unless he just digs down deep and he says, no, God said no, and that's going to be the only reason. I mean, that, that ought to be enough. And you know what? No sarcasm there. That should be enough. But you can see how the law has been undercut in the modern Christian's life. So even that no seems arbitrary. The reason the modern Christian has a hard time is they're trying to defend chastity in a way the Bible never defends it. The Bible never discusses sex this way. First, the Bible presents sex as the literal part of transforming the world. I'll say that again. The Bible presents sex as the literal part of transforming the world. There in the first words God spoke to Adam and Eve, he says, literally, I have lots of kids that take care of the whole earth with them. Figuratively, we talk about the fruitful labor, the fruitful art. We talk about multiplying the good things of culture. This is the cultural mandate. That's, that is metaphor. That's application of what the text actually says. So kick yourself in the shin. Feel some real world pain. Get off your cloud. It's time to be literal. Raise your children to know the purpose of life, the generational plan of God, the fact that Abraham and Sarah, Adam and Eve, you, your great-grandparents, even Jesus, until the future happened, they were just like you. They were the end of the line. They were as far as time had gotten. But within 400 years, there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions who could call themselves their children. And if you extend that to the concept of in agreement with them, you're talking hundreds of millions. You too are the father and mother, child, listener. You are the father and mother of generations. Discipleship is a metaphor of the reality of what parents do <clears throat> with their children. 
It's not the other way around. We don't disciple our children. We raise our children to become responsible adults, full of the wisdom and knowledge of the Word of God and the ability to apply it. Out of that, we say, and you know what? There are going to be some people who aren't your children who you should disciple also, like Jesus discipled the twelve. Discipleship is the metaphor, when you're dealing with adults, of what parents do with their children, not the other way around. Show the children that raising them is the most important, wonderful thing in your life. And when it comes time to talk about sex, you will have already built into their lives the biblical reason for fulfilling their wife and husband and discipling the next generation. God has someone for you. Like God had a tree of life for Eve and Adam. Hang your future on that tree. Hang your future on trusting God's word, the way God hung your future on his tree, the cross, so that you could have the heart to do these things. Now, the second aspect of the Holy Spirit Jesus said those unbelievable words in the upper room it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's John 16, 7. Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> what could be better than hanging out with Jesus? I mean, the whole church today just can't wait till he comes back because that's when the action starts. Well, you listen to this Jesus that you think has to be here for you to have action. That Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, is your Lord and your God, and he wanted nothing to do with codependent rule of the pagan Gentile world. He does not want you codependent on him. Oh, how can you be that? He's the Lord of the universe. Oh, yeah? Yes. He wanted nothing to do with it. It is better that I am on my own, Jesus? But listen to John the Baptist. He said the same thing. He must increase, but I must decrease. The independence of your children is the purpose of all your discipline, love, and interaction. Independent the way Jesus raised you to be independent. Not independent of the truth, not independent of his word, but out of a codependent relationship. So that, for instance, the church today thinks they have no responsibility for the earth, for the God so loved the world, but we have no responsibility for that world until Jesus comes back. Then when he's with us, see, then when we have a codependent relationship with him, we can actually do something effective in the earth. That's the death of codependency, the belief that you have nothing to do. You have no vision for what the, the, um, <clears throat> what the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it. What the uh, Great Commission tells you to do, go make disciples of all nations. In your case, wait, independent the way Jesus raised you to be independent. In his case, he gives you the Holy Spirit to put all with you. Now, in your case, you mirror that by imparting to your children your vision. What you give your children that dwells with them and in them and with your children is patterned after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, are you still not convinced? Jesus went on to say, very truly, I tell you, in other words, you can, you can take this to the bank. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. 
grab a seat here, they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. <laughs> Jesus was post-millennial. Jesus had that vision, which is in every parent. My kid can be better than me. I should say every healthy parent. There are a lot of unhealthy parents who try to hold their kids back for fear they'll be better. But they know that's wrong. It's put in every parent that, that, that sense of, you can be better than me. That's one of the reasons I don't hold them back, because they can be better. Just in sin, they don't want it to be. This is all post-millennialism is all about. The Holy Spirit at work in his people, making the world better. And that's what Jesus said. You will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus, right after that, he talks about giving them the Holy Spirit. This is how Pentecost is about teaching your children how to grow up, what to grow into. This is their legacy in Christ received from your parenting. Don't let the elders of the church or the kings of the earth steal it from them and try to convince them that they will always be children with the need of father elders and father kings to rule over them and wipe and take care of them. Codependency is the lie of the world. It was the stopgap that rulers had under the authoritarian stopgap time between the fall into sin and, when, and, and the, the time of Jesus coming to transform the earth. Listen, raising children to be retarded as a matter of authoritarian purpose is not what God planned from the beginning because you can't have full, uh, mature, spiritually wise, able to judge all things adults being ruled by an authoritarian government. It will be like, like oil and water. But how? What do I do? I know I've, this has been granted for how to raise your children. This is pretty uh, theoretical. And the reason it is, is because at this point you need to get together and pray with your wife, with your husband, and say, how do we become one flesh? How have we undermined each other? How have we not strengthened each other? How have we not served each other? How have we played that who's in charge game? Instead of working together as one person, you talk to me, you talk to dad, you talk to dad, you talk to me. I think I just said the same thing twice. You talk to mom, you talk to me. There we go. Okay, here are just a few things I can think of off the top of my head. Things are doing well with your kids. They're playing quietly. Now, go do something with them that they want to do with you. This isn't like, oh, thank God I can finally go do something I really wanted to do. No. When things are going well, that's when you want to... Gosh, I said step in. No, that's why you want to join them. See the world as they see it. Have fun with them as they have fun. Now, depending on the age, it'll vary. You might find yourself, God forbid, playing video games. And for those of you who are alienated from your children, find out what video games they're playing. Start playing them and ask their advice. Oh, you're going to submit yourself to you? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what submission is all about. You're going to serve them. And as you do, you'll find they open up and trust you. And as they give you advice on how to play the game, you'll find, I guarantee you, within a month, you'll be having conversations about stuff you never thought you could talk to them about, all because you just served them and found out how they saw the world and tried to see it with them. I know there's an authoritarian out there somewhere who's going to say, yeah, but our job is to be the dad, to be the mom, to be the... Yeah. Don't worry, you are. They're never going to get confused and think you're their friend. That... 
That's not going to happen. And if it does, it means you're building a codependent relationship. Okay, here's the second thing I would suggest. Don't let the discipline time be more than 5% of the time you spend with them. The more time you spend doing things that engage children, the more the corrections which you have to give the children. You will have to be correcting your children. You may have to be spanking your children. Don't, I, don't take anything I'm saying as being mere permissiveness. I'm not. I'm talking about bearing the cross with your children. But the more corrections, <clears throat> excuse me, the more time you spend doing things that engage your children compared to the time you spend correcting them, the more that every time you correct them, it will draw you together with them rather than drive you apart. I hesitate to use this analogy because it's in my own family. My brother, my father did not spend a whole lot of time with my brother doing what I'm just telling you to do. So consequently, the way the two of them related to each other was through discipline. My brother hated it, my father hated it, but that's how they related to each other. And they ended up spending all this time so that when there were times of discipline, it drove them apart. By contrast, I had the tremendous privilege. I'm not, I'm by no means a better person than my brother. In fact, I, I would say if you got to know the two of us, you would like him far more than you like me. But the reason I built a relationship, I, I didn't build a relationship with my father. The reason that relationship was there so that his discipline of me drew me to him was because my brother and sister had left the home and I was the only child. And after they had had some experience raising children when they came to me, he ended up spending time with me. Time when had nothing to do with discipline so that the time we were together, usually arguing about the definition of words and things like that, uh, or I was trying to write a translation of the Westminster Confession of Faith when I was 12 or 13 and he took it and said, this is terrible and he redlined it. He said, if you ever want to affect people, you better learn grammar and how to spell. But you see, that didn't bother me. It was like, wow, he viewed it as something worth. Here's the guy who knows more about English and more about language than anybody I've ever met. He could speak five, six different languages. And he's, he's taking the time to proofread me. Okay, so there's red ink all over the page. See, because of our relationship, I didn't walk away hurt. I walk away, wow, I must be important. He took time with me because he built that relationship. It's so easy to want free time so badly that you minimize your contact to, what now? Stop that. He's your brother. Can't you just please let him play with it? And suddenly you realize that this becomes 90% of your contact. It can be addressed. It's just pay attention to that. It's not that you never correct. It's what you're doing when you're not correcting that provides the context. Now find things to do. This, this is D. Find things to do that force you to take a weekend road trips. I will tell you, one, there's two things that reunited me with my older children when we stopped rescuing. We used to have that in common and then I became a pastor and it was devastating to their faith. The first thing with the older children was we just started going to movies, R-rated movies. I know, don't do it, bad to do. But it's like, you know what? This is Southern California. They were already in an X-rated world. The R-rated movies were a, a modest step for them. 
and going to them and talking about them and spending the time with them, it literally transformed their perspective. And as they were going through the difficulties common to teenagers, they suddenly, I shouldn't say suddenly, we built a bond that the Lord mightily used. I'm not recommending what I did, the specifics. I'm recommending, I mean, like, if you guys grow up on the farm, maybe going to R-rated movies isn't the best idea for you. If you're in Southern California, it might be an improvement. With the younger kids, it was organized sports. That weekend road trip forced their selfish dad to stop doing whatever he was doing for three days in a row and spend that time doing nothing but to support his kids. They're also incredibly talented. My youngest went to Hungary to play soccer and was, was recruited by a professional team over there and decided he'd rather be in America. So, I mean, it's... And, and by the way, let me just... This has nothing to do with any of this, but it's, but, but it's something that's been burdening to me. As everybody talks about, um, you know, why doesn't Reconstruction have more impact on the world? One of the reasons why is people who are not excellent don't have impact on anything. If you want excellence, excuse me, if you want impact, you'd better be excellent in something that makes people say, I want to hear what you have to say on this. I want to watch you perform. I want you to do this thing for me and so forth. Excellence is what makes people listen to you. So you can talk reconstruction from now till the day you die. If you're committed to mediocrity, nobody's going to pay any attention to you. On the other hand, if you're committed to excellence, it means a lot of stuff gets sacrificed so that you can become excellent in that area. Now, I'm not going to say what it is to be excellent in, but I'm just saying one of the things I really appreciate about sports is it's a way in sort of a non, I won't say non-moral, because there's not such a thing as non-moral, but you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's just you're trying to do something that doesn't have anything to do with anything except gaining skill and expertise. And my younger kids and I developed a way of training and learning soccer, which really, if you want to learn soccer, it will, if you give me 15 hours, I will give you an entire year worth of skills. We developed this method together. And they all went on and became the stars of whatever team they did. But from the point of view of the family, what it did was it gave us something to do together that, we, that I and they couldn't escape. And in doing that, I began to look for two or three things to do on each weekend that we could go do with them that were fun, that were interesting, that other kids didn't get to do. And so consequently, and those of you who have raised children in a teenagehood, my two younger children, up until they're about 15, 16, would be with their friends, and their friends would not be paying a bit of attention to anything I said. And on many, many occasions, Hunter or Jesse would turn to their friends and say, hey, wait a second, my dad's saying something, I want to hear what it is. Not because they respected me, not because I have power over them, but because they wanted to hear what I had to say. As a parent, if you can't appreciate that, your heart is cold. 
Now, I'm not saying there's a method to get to that. If there were, I certainly wouldn't have got there. I have no method. Then the final thing is look them in the eye when times are good. Get the habit of catching their eye and looking them in the eye outside of a disciplinary situation, when something's fun, when you're sharing a joke, when you're sharing a prank, when you're sharing anything, catch the eye, smile, let them know that it's good. Because the Holy Spirit is there looking you in the eye. When you look your child in the eye and tell him a thing or two, like you have to discipline him, look at me, look at me, and that's what then you say whatever it is they need to, you don't do such and such. You don't, why do you always do that? It's always look at me, that's when you catch their eye. If you catch their eye only when you have a thing or two to tell them, you will be surprised at what God says back to you because the Holy Spirit is alive and active in their life and in yours. You have no problem looking your children in the eye for discipline, but honestly, is it really for discipline? Or are you so hungry for meaning and for control and for power that far too many times it's a power play? I have power. You don't, you don't look me in the eye. Admit it. I am the greatest. I have the moral high ground. You have sinned. Look me in the eye. I am moral. You are out of control. I control you. I control you because you are too dumb, you are too weak, you are too immoral to control yourself. I doubt if many of you have ever actually used those words with your children, but in the specifics of what you're disciplining them for, insisting that that is the time that they look you in the eye, this is what you're saying to them. Now, the fact is, that last part about, you know, you're too dumb, weak, immoral to control yourself, if you raise kids, that's pretty true. That's why you're there. That's why you're the parent. But you see, God has given you control because they cannot control themselves. But at this moment, it, it, discipline is not your moment of victory, not where you come through as the, as the victorious parent, the victorious king, queen. This moment is your failure. You fail to use that control in the years prior to bring that child to a sufficient level of moral and intelligent strength to not need whatever it is you're giving him what for by way of correction. Why are you triumphing over him? If he had the maturity and the knowledge to say it, he could say right back to you what actually some of my kids have said to me. I'm, I'm putting together things that have been said to me over the years as I've, as I've shown my children the proper way to go in this way. They could say right back to me, look me in the eye, Dad. You have failed me again. I'm weak because your strength didn't strengthen me. It either ignored me or it beat me down. That is not why God gave you strength or moral greatness over me. So look me in the eye and realize your failure before God. The Holy Spirit has that way about him. Right when we thought we had it figured out, right when we had him eye to eye, right when we were getting the truth he so desperately needed, right when the rod of correction was being applied, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, whoa, whoa, Foreman, what are you saying here? Look at your life. 
Now, I'm not in any way saying this to make you think, oh, well, who am I to discipline? Yeah, no, you have a job to do. And in the middle of doing it, if God opens up your eyes to something like this, if this indeed is what you're, I'm not saying all of you do this. I'm just saying, I'm just sharing with you my own, my own discipline and my own failures. If God shows you this, it's not over. Kids are amazing. He's given you to them and them to you. Man, that was intense. That, that accelerated pretty quickly. Look, lots of eye contact. Lots of, you know what I like about you? And then fill in the blank. Look for things. Do you know my dad had the hardest time with my kids, grandkids. He loved my brother's kids for, well, because they're great kids. But, but you know, he, he always, there's always something wrong with my kids. And you know what I did for him? I just, every time he would say something negative about Zach or Jeremy or, you know, Josh or Crystal, Josh married Crystal or something like that, um, I would just, I, I would, God just showed me stuff in my kid's life. And I would say, hey, you, you know, Father, um, have you ever wondered what you would be like if you grew up in a family of like eight kids instead of being an only child? And then I would tell him a story about something Zach did or Jeremy did or Josh did or something like that or Laurel did and, and telling me, <laughs> I'm leaving out some of my kids, okay? If, if you're looking at this and I've left you out, my apologies. And I would say, can you see yourself in this? And I'll tell him a story, which was just exactly what he would do in that situation, but he would never do as an only child. And after about two or three months of just basically getting him to fill in the blank for my kids, hey, Zach, you know what I like about you? Hey, Jeremy, you know what I like? About, hey, Laurel, you know what I like about you? And I filled in that blank for him. This is how he is like you, Father. All the kids noticed it. They were like, man, what happened to Grandfather? Man, he's the nicest guy. He says good stuff about me. He just, he really, I, I mean, just like they noticed the change. And all he was doing, all I did for him is what I'm encouraging you as a parent to do. Fill in the blank with each of your kids as often as you can. Eyeball to eyeball. You know what I like about you? You never quit. You know what I like about you? You got the best sense of humor. You crack me up. You know what I like about you? You are so much like your mother. Do you know what I like about you? Man, I can see your father in you. Man, I, you're just like your grandfather. Do you know what I like about you? And just... Try and figure out more and better ways to find out things that you like about them. And do this at times when nothing is going on, because it sure sounds phony when they've messed up and you come up with some half-baked... In fact, I have a son, Hunter. He's an awesome soccer player, and uh, he can't stand it when people give him false praise who don't understand the game. And so at this game, I was, I was a little late getting it to him, and, and I was walking to the edge of the hill. We're in the mountains here, so soccer and football fields are always down in a valley. And, 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 and I was walking along the edge of the valley towards the gate, and I saw him come down with the ball all alone, and he skied it. He kicked it over the top of the goal. And everybody was saying, that's okay, Hunter. That's okay, Hunter. Hey, it's okay. And I shouted out <laughs> during the science course, Hunter, you suck. And he looks up at me and he got a big smile and he goes back to playing the game. Now, I'm, I'm not saying tear your children down, criticize them. I mean, it could be just as bad to say something like that at the wrong time. But from Hunter's perspective, 
listening to everybody try and make him feel good about what he knew perfect and they knew was just unforgivable for a guy at his skill level to do something like that you know it, it just really tore him up to hear that and so when i just said it like it was it just like it made his night and he goes on he plays i mean as usual he played an outstanding game that's why i say i don't have things for you to say things for you to do things it's just like it's just really really general can you th look you can think of a lot more than what i've come up with and it's time to start coming up communing and the parent this was so clever when I wrote it down. It's time for you to start coming up, excuse me, to start communing in the parent head, that great image of the unseen God that you represent, you and your wife, you and your husband, and think of how you can build up your child. Look, I'm not saying spare the rod. I'm saying remember the rod is for the back of fools. How long will you keep your child in foolishness a perpetual childhood before you realize that your calling in life is independent adulthood for your children who understand God's law because you helped write it on their heart and who know how to have the wisdom to apply it and when that starts happening you will have children who will be discipling the nations that spring from them this is the end of the world as we know it. The end of the world as it's been known since the beginning, since the fall into sin. But it's the beginning of the world as it was, as God intended. You have been recreated, a new creature in a new world. It's the beginning of the world as he is making it through you. And as you discipline your children to disciple, excuse me, as you disciple your children to disciple theirs, you are touching the minds and the hearts of millions. Now, I get to finish this meal. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website. Send us an email and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action 
for Christ and His kingdom.